The past shapes who we are, but it doesn't define who we're going to become. Finance, budgeting, cash flow, and investing don't have to be scary words. The We Talk Sense podcast is here to help you learn more about money and take control of your personal finances. The We Talk Sense podcast is not a financial advisor. This podcast is made for entertainment and educational purposes only. All information shared is of a general nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate for your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. For more information, please check out wemoney.com.au slash disclaimer. Thanks for everybody for tuning in to another installment of We Talk Sense. Today, we've got a really special guest joining us to help us learn all about money and shame and how they're so closely linked. If you're a new listener, thank you for tuning in and I'm welcomed today with uh, my co-host, Blaze. And Blaze, G'day. for all those listeners who listened to last week's podcast with Professor Claire Collins, mm-hmm. Claire Collins sent you a challenge about your discretionary yes, spending. Did. Blaze, do you want to fill us in on what the challenge was and how you were tracking? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think, Dan, that I would actually rather not let you know how I'm going with that challenge because... <laughs> I gotta tell you, I got a real slap in the face <laughs> when I finished that episode. So the context is: so Laura, Professor Claire Collins, she's a professor in dietetics and nutrition. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I highly recommend it. She was amazing. I um learned a lot from her about how you can eat well on a budget and how how eating well can actually have a positive impact on your life as a whole, including your finances. But I um, admitted that I am a a little bit of a brunch club member and I love going out for brunch and I love going out for food. And when we were chatting to Claire, I thought, and Dan, I don't know, what do you think when we were chatting about diet, uh, diet and food and money? Because my thought was we would talk about how to save money in the grocery store. And that's not what happened, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. You and I both got into the naughty quarter in our spending. That's right. Well, she enlightened me that, well, us and anyone listening, um, maybe you were enlightened as well, that food spend isn't just, uh, this is so silly, but food spend is not just the money you spend at the grocery store. A lot of our food spend is actually on discretionary food or discretionary spending on food that we probably don't need to buy, like treats or meals out or coffees or whatever it is. So, yeah, she challenged me to uh, look at my food spending and have a budget that includes my discretionary food. And so what I've done is I actually went through my uh, bank statements and I had a little look at how much money I spent on food last week total. So groceries and discretionary. And I'm actually so embarrassed. (laughs) I've made a little pie chart in Excel out of all the money I spent on food last week, I spent 79.4% on discretionary food. Wow. And I'm just picturing that pie graph in Excel and how appetizing three quarters <laughs> looks like. <laughs> Very appetizing. I am actually shocked. I'm actually shocked. Do you know, it's the stats, this is not good. 
I have definitely have room to improve. And it's actually quite nice to know that I have room to improve because I've just seen a really big opportunity where I can actually curb my spending and save and invest that money and put it elsewhere. Out of the 14 places that I spent money food, food money on food last week, only two of them were grocery stores. The rest is a coffee here or a little treat here or a breakfast here. I'm literally, I'm astounded and frankly pretty embarrassed at the level of spending. I, I, w- I was completely in the dark at how much money I was spending on discretionary food. It's actually crazy. Well, Blaze, don't worry, you're not alone. And a lot of people, I think, would be equally as shocked. You know, some people might have a pie that is a full pie. So the fact that it was only three mm. quarters, don't feel too bad. But yeah, I think it's such a challenge for a lot of people because there's so many circumstances where you find yourself to make those discretionary purchases and it all adds up. Mm-hmm. If you get a small amounts, so are very hard to mentally sort of track. But yeah, when you do get that on a spreadsheet, it can be quite surprising to most. And I've got to admit, I'm mm-hmm. in the same club, Blaze. For me... There's something cathartic for me for going to the shops. I'm a big shopper. I love it, to be honest. Uh, don't mm. tell my wife because she uh, uh, always likes me going to the shops and she always nags me out for um, me being – she calls me the shopping fairy and then she gets the <laughs> chance to be the the, the the cleaning fairy or the washing fairy in the house. But I love going to the shops and I always mm. get caught out with uh, food shopping, in particular on buying stuff to say, okay – stock up on a ready day, you know, buy more of this stuff. And like you, Blaze, with your discretionary spending on going out, I've recently noticed, and of course, inflation taking, you know, a bigger chunk of mm. my budget of food spending is that it's just all adding up. And last month, I spent 30% more in grocery shopping than I have ever. Wow. And you know what? I actually thought I was spending less, but the offset against <gasps> inflation and then also just buying mm. all the, you know, the big expensive stuff, that you get like washing detergent, powder, things that are big ticket items, man, it all adds up. Yeah. And yeah, just like you, Blaze, sometimes it can catch us by surprise. So we're both in the same, yeah. same boat. I would also just like to uh, clarify that not all of the discretionary spending was on myself. There was, I did, you know, have some celebratory, celebratory meals with friends that I shouted. So it's not all me, but yes, I was the one uh, tapping the card. So yeah, it, it, I guess it was all me. I'm just trying to, <laughs> just trying to <laughs> shift the blame here. <laughs> nice. But my goal for next week, next podcast, Dan, I am going to look at my spending and I'm hoping that it will be more around the 70-30 mark, a complete swing in the opposite direction where I hope that most of my spending is on groceries. So I'm going to aim for that and I will, of course, let you know how how I go. Well, Blows, keen to learn more and I'm sure you'll report that to Professor Claire Collins as she's probably listening to this episode as we speak. She's actually emailed me and asked me how I'm going. So I will, I will have to send her, I'll send her my embarrassing pie chart. Dan, let's talk about the news because the Australian census for 2021, the results are in and I want to know what's what, what are the money results? What are the finance outcomes from the 2021 census? Well, it's a pretty big one. It's often filled with juicy information and uh, you know the media, I think, did a great job, by the way, this year of highlighting all the important stuff. But you know, diving straight into the big topic items and money related is, of course, housing affordability where the ABS revealed while many are unable to afford a home, almost one in 10 houses are vacant. So these are properties that are not occupied by anybody, which seems like such a shame. I'm wondering why that number is actually very high. Is the people that- Did you just say one in 10? One in 10, yep, huge. A million what? properties, yeah. A million plus properties have nobody living in them. 
that just doesn't even seem to make sense. There is there is a housing there's a crisis. Huge, yeah, massively, wow. massively. It's either the holiday homes, you know, mm. or investment properties. That maybe at the time of the census were unoccupied, but it kind of seems strange because it's a very very high number. And mm. yeah, I mean, isn't that just an opportunity? I think there's something there, right? Either it's people who are potentially offering these properties up for rent and missing out on you know occupancy and you know, earning an income. Mm. Yeah, it's really strange. What else did you find out from the census? The proportion of people that owned their own home outright dropped from 41.6% at the end of 1996, so this is, again, mid-90s, to 31% in 2021. So that's a huge, massive shift of people mm. that have got more likely than not to have a mortgage or an increased level of people that have got uh, loans outstanding on their homes than we did you know over you know two and a half decades ago that's wild i actually i had a little squizzed a news article and learned something that just shocked me they did some research and did some maths and the research showed that the average person on youth allowance would have to pay 92 percent of their income to rent a single room in canberra or the equivalent of 83% of their income, so 83% of their entire youth allowance, to rent a single room in Sydney. 92% of your income. Mm. Imagine having 8, 8% left for food, for fuel, for transport anywhere, for, you know, what if you've got health, con- like, what if you need to get a prescription? Like, what if you need to see a doctor? What if you need to see a psych? And you've got 8% left over after just putting a roof over your head. I just can't imagine being in that situation. I really can't, and I really feel for the people that are in that situation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a good point, and I think it, uh, it, it, housing and housing affordability is you know, a continuing theme as a massive crisis in Australia. And one thing that we've also seen from the census is that the heightened degree of mortgage stress is also increasing. So people having to pay more now as rates start starting to increase. I, I just have a funny feeling that... Again, not being in prediction mode, but I think that this is the Fucking start. Damn it again. <laughs> <laughs> this is the start of a long-term, uh, you know, correction in the housing market, where effectively people can't afford to borrow any more money because the rates on mortgages are just higher than ever. People are probably going to be more incentivized now to, you know, rent instead of you know mm. buying a home. So maybe that building properties become you know more available. But the demand for housing in general probably, you know, will come down naturally as it becomes unaffordable. And the, the only thing to really solve this, Blaze, and I think the Australian government should listen now, is that the only way to bring down property prices systematically is increasing supply. Without supply, mm. you won't have choice for people to select properties and make the market more competitive and then offer people the ability to buy more homes. So I think that's going to be mm. a big focus for the new Labor government in their first term is to solve this problem. So, yeah, interesting stats and something that we're super glad to highlight. Mm. There was one last thing that I wanted to discuss uh, with you, Dan, because I had a little, you know, you know me, I love a little sticky beak. I love to have a little squiz and say what's happening. And I was looking at who are the, who are the big spenders, who are the people making lots of money and yeah, non-surprisingly, unsurprisingly, and disappointingly, seventy-one uh, percent of the people of those that are earning more than three thousand dollars a week—which, hello, that sounds 
nice. Like, good on you if you're earning that much. That's amazing. But 71% of the people earning more than that are men and only 29% of that cohort will be men. And um, I would like to see that more balanced. Mm. Obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of the situation, but we do know that wage inequality is a massive issue still mm. here in Australia, even after everything we do to uh, to fight for it and to raise awareness for it. Um, the stats show women are still being underpaid. And, um, yeah, hmm. that's something that I feel really passionately about and would like to see changed. 100%. I think a lot of people in Australia would also like to see that change. And uh, I think the only way that we could do that, Blade, is by calling uh, more attention to the problem of the issue. Like a lot of people, not just us, but plenty of other people have done very valiantly over the years. And if that story continues, then I think we might have a hope. But without discussing it, then we don't have a hope to change it. So... Yeah, disappointing and hopefully, and given by the makeup of the new Labor government front bench uh, being very, very populated with uh, female representation, that should probably move in a direction where more policies are put in place where that gap can close. So terrifying stat, but hopefully it changes in a positive direction in the, uh, in the months and years to come. Here, here. Speaking of ladies making change, shall we invite our lovely guest to the show? Let's do it, Blazy. Now, today we are lucky enough to be inviting our first ever financial counsellor to the show. Now, when it comes to money, our guest is most passionate about helping everyone have the opportunity to make choices that suit them. In 2020, she received the State Award for Developing Practice at the Financial Counsellors Association of Western Australia. When she's not making hilarious and informative videos about money on her Instagram, Bad Bitch Money, you'll find her building up her fitness, doing pole dancing, CrossFit, or maybe she'll have her head stuck in a book as she's also studying law. Joining us now from Perth, Western Australia, just around the corner, is a financial counsellor, Victoria Shakesharp from Communicare. Victoria, how are you going today? Hey, Blaze. I'm good, thank you. Um, very excited to be here. Firstly, we'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, uh, pay my respects to their elders past and present and any coming through, uh, as well as my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people that are listening today. Yep, always was, always will be. Victoria, thank you for joining us. Um, okay, first of all, first up, what what is a financial counsellor? What is it that you do? Is it different to a financial advisor? Is it the same name for a different thing? What's what's the story there? So financial counselling is totally different to financial advice. We are experts in money crisis. So financial counselling is a free community-based service. I work for the Financial Counselling Network, which is 14 organisations that all provide counselling and financial wellbeing services. Basically, our bread and butter is helping people when they're, when they're in a money crisis and that mm. looks different for everyone. So there's three broad categories that would be people who have experienced a crisis-causing event, divorce, mm -hmm. death, job loss, health issue. Something has had a dramatic and sudden impact on their ability to pay their expenses. So that's category one. Category two would be people who are managing on or below the poverty line people surviving on Centrelink, people leaving violent relationships, people who uh, have a work injury and they're waiting on an insurance payout. And that's usually more a case of making do with 
what you have. Mm-hmm. And then the third category is really like the skills and confidence-based category. People on wages who have issues with spending, credit cards, personal loans, buy now, pay later. They've either got in over their head mm-hmm. and or they have no idea how to budget. Mm-hmm. That's really a fascinating insight into financial counselling, the distinction between that and financial advice. But I have to ask, is how did you get into financial counselling? Was it one of those things when I grew up, I wanted to do this? Or was it more pivotal for you in terms of stumbling across this you know, way to help people? And um, yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. It's a funny sort of story. It always makes me sound a bit wishy-washy as a person which really isn't who I am but I yeah so my dad and my granddad were both financial advisors right so really working in that wealth accumulation protecting your assets space Uh, and I was working in an admin job in my 20s for about five years and then I kind of was realizing okay it's time to find some sort of purpose Mm -hmm. And I just threw it out to the universe. <laughs> Sounds yep. really kooky. Um, no, and I was it doesn't. like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that I do, Victoria. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I said, I'm ready. I said, I'm ready for the next thing. Uh, and then I was reading something and it was talking about financial counseling. I'd never heard of it before, which is really mm-hmm. common. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, there it is. That's what I'm supposed to do now. And it really was, that nice. was it. So you threw it out to the universe. Was there was there anything pivotal in your own life other than the what sounds like a mini quarter life crisis of going? I don't want to do admin forever. Did you have any like what's your own financial background like? Have you had any moments where you've needed counselling or having parents or having financial advisors in the family you're quite well educated when it comes to finance? We definitely had a lot of money talks when I was younger. It was always, I've always from a young age been focused on the future. I always take a really excessively long-term view. So um, it's always been interesting to me. I've always enjoyed how money works and how how I can save it and what to do with it. And I bought a house um, with my partner at the time in my early 20s. Uh, which was a big lesson. Um, And, yeah, so it was interesting because I do always remember as a kid um, the tension of the credit card bills being on the fringe, even though we were really kind of middle class, like there was no real true financial hardship. I always had a perception that there was. Um, But, yeah, it was just that I always felt like money came quite easily to me and I really – was interested in helping people do that, but I didn't want to charge them for it because I Mm. felt like it was something that everyone should be able to have the basics in. So counselling, financial counselling, because it's free, it's a government, usually government-funded service, really married those things together for me. That's awesome. Well, Victoria, you know, we had a little birdie chip in our ear and there's a rumour that the favourite thing is when a client comes into your office and you make them cry. Why is that? (laughs) uh yes i actually watched that talk back this morning just in case you asked me about it so i did a talk at our national conference which was really talking about shame um and how Mm. shame impacts our relationship not only with money but um our relationships in general and our relationship with ourselves so Mm. my favorite thing about making a person cry in my office 
really means that I know that I've connected with the underlying emotion that has brought them in front of me mm-hmm. and that they feel safe enough that they can release the the stress and the shame and the anxiety of what has happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really is quite often the start of great work together. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but I always, I'm always so grateful that people can be that vulnerable with me when it does, mm-hmm. because shame really, um, I'm so passionate about, about shame just because it's a universal emotion. And so many people, so many people think that when they have shame about what's happened to them and their money, that it's never happened to anybody else and that everybody else has it sorted out when it's so far from the reality, but it really impacts everything that we do. And it's so exhausting carrying the weight of that shame. So when a person's crying in front of me and I can actually Mm -hmm. see them start to release a little bit of that weight that they're carrying. And I think it's really, uh, really beautiful part of the process where I think okay let's move forward now like what's Mm. next how do we fix this together I feel like um I suppose that's where the name financial counselor comes into it right it's sort of like when you go to therapy or you reach out and ask for help at a certain time taking the first step and acknowledging the severity of your situation whether it is you know, you need help financially or whether it is you're struggling physically or whether it is that your mental health has taken a toll. Sometimes the hardest step is the first one and just acknowledging, hey, like I'm actually not doing okay here. Can can you give me a hand? If you're looking to get better clarity on your financial situation, then give the WeMoney app a go. WeMoney is a free smartphone app that helps you manage your money better pay down debt, monitor your spending, and keep track of your credit score all in one place. And the best thing is for free. Head on over to the Apple App Store, Google Play Store, and use the referral code PODCAST when you sign up and earn $5 when you connect an eligible bank account to WeMoney. All right, now let's get back to the show. When it comes to shame and money, why is it, do you think, like, why are they so entwined? I think that there is a real element of... Uh, you know, people's relationship with money is really easy to hide and it's really easy to disguise. So Mm -hmm. when we look around us, yeah. (laughs) Buy now, pay later. How are they they affording that? (laughs) When we look at how people, how everyone else is going, we see this surface level, we see the trips to Europe, we see the bougie dinners, we see the YSL bags and it's the case of when you're looking at your own money, you think, well, I don't have any savings in case of an emergency. I buy stuff that doesn't make me feel good and I can't seem to save anything and I don't really know why. And you you create a little whirlpool where you think that you are the cause of that problem and it really then drives the behaviour because Mm. you're like, well, I'm just bad with money so there's there's – I can't do anything about that and the cycle is just going to continue. And so that guilt leads into spending to uh, try and remedy that guilt, which then Mm -hmm. it just, yeah, it's this horrible little circle and and millennials are really susceptible to it because we live in a culture where everything is keep up. We used to have in the, you know, in the 80s, 90s, noughties, 
the term keeping up with the Joneses, which was the yep. whole concept of, you know, your neighbor bought a, a better car, so then you bought a better car and, and all of those things. But really these days it's keeping up with the influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a really challenging thing for people to overcome, especially if they historically believe that they are bad with money. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Such an important topic and I think the cultural influence is often things that you know we often ignore and we often think that people are doing way better than ourselves and uh, you always hear the stories. Uh, the person living in the burbs who's the neighbourhood millionaire mm. uh, but then the person living rent in a very expensive suburb that is just making ends meet. It's a, it's a real big topic and... How can we approach the conversation about money that makes us feel safe and is shame-free, Victoria? I think one of the biggest things is actually just starting to talk about money with with people, with your friends, yeah. with your family. You know, I talk about money with everybody, obviously. That's my job. <laughs> but also, you are, you are paid to do it. That I is, am paid to do it. That is but your I love, life change. It is, yes, it is my bread and butter. But um, I always say that at my workshops. I say, I get paid to talk about money every day. That's why I love it. But, you know, <laughs> we always keep money so close to our chest, either from fear of people around us knowing that we don't have enough mm. or thinking that, our friends and family are going to think that we have too much mm. um, and that we're, you know, we're greedy or we're rich or, or any, it can go either way. Mm. And the way that we get rid of shame is by giving people the opportunity to understand that whatever is happening to them, if they're in a bad situation, they're not the first person that it's happened to. They're not the first person that's come out of it and they're not the first person to experience those feelings. And then the flip side of that is if you're someone who's really successful with money is actually having the opportunity to share that knowledge and that those mistakes and what has shaped you with your friends and family. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really wholesome in my opinion. I love it. But I think it, it always is a challenge at the beginning because to be the first one to start asking about it or start trying to have those conversations, you can meet a lot of resistance. Mm. A friend of mine was telling me recently that he was listening to a a podcast and they'd said they were talking about how to have money conversations when you're not really sure how the other person's going to react or what their stance is on it is. And their suggestion was um, ask someone, what are you saving for? Because it's sort of you know, everyone's sort of got a goal or well, most people have something that they potentially want to buy one day. So it's a really safe sort of question because, hey, you might have saved nothing towards it, but you're thinking about it. Or maybe you have a savings plan in place. Or maybe you've got 99% of the money saved for it. So it's it sort of makes it like a safe, accessible way to actually start talking about money or broach the topic of money with your friends and family. My favourite is who's your super with? Like which super fund are you with? Obviously, I love superannuation uh, because I always think that's really interesting. It's really easy to gauge then how literate around money someone might already be because if they say to you, oh, I'm with this super fund and it's invested this way and this way, then you know that they're really, really across their money whereas someone goes, oh, I've got seven super accounts, then you might think, okay, they're really at the beginning of their journey. So when I have these conversations or when I'm chatting, I'm going to make sure that I'm not talking about really high-level concepts that might make Mm. that person feel unsafe or less than. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Victoria, I am really curious. When 
where you're working as a financial counselor, what are the biggest issues that you're seeing millennials facing in your in your day to day life, in your day to day work? I think the keeping up with the influences is a really big one. Also, and really kind of linking in with that is that whole comparison syndrome. Okay, so I'm mm-hmm. seeing that that Jared that I went to high school with is now a millionaire with a housekeeper, and that makes me feel like trash. So. I'm yep. going to spend $100 on the Iconic and then $40 on Uber Eats because... Sandy Jared. Yeah, Jared, <laughs> I'm going to invoice you for it. <laughs> and, you know, that whole element of FOMO where people, millennials, taking out personal loans so that they don't miss out on the trip to Europe with their friends mm. or conversely they're buying a house with their partner because everyone else is and apparently that's what we have to do to be successful in Australia please don't even get me started on that. Another one is relationship breakdowns where my millennials are coming through. They've been with their partner, you know, 5, 10, 15 years since high school or since their early 20s and then they've really grown apart or they've realised that they no longer align and they've got 5, 10, 15 years of convoluted combined finances or Mm. one person's managed everything the whole time and it's a real sense of being cut adrift And then I guess the last one is really that fear of trusting yourself, the old FOTI, where thinking that everything up until now has made you into who you are and that it's finite, that you'll never get better or that that those behaviours will never change. And so much, you know, with my millennials, it's like 10% finances, 90% counselling, you know, it's really looking at where's that self-doubt coming from where where are these values coming from that you think that you have to achieve versus what is it that you actually want out of your life and out of your money because that shapes everything that we do Victoria that that's 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 really incredible and I love the holistic approach that you're taking because really it's like an iceberg it's like 10% of your finances 90% you the individual your environment and everything else that uh, helps you you know understand how you could be managing your money better but turning to you, Victoria, you know, what are some of the biggest personal lessons that you've taken away from managing money yourself? I have had a few. I do love a good personal crisis. I've said to my boss a few times, oh, it's been three months, Richard, it's time for a personal crisis. And he goes, all right, <laughs> let me know. Uh, I think, you know, buying a house in my early 20s was a real that's one of my core financial lessons. Mm. It was really fascinating to understand how expensive owning a property actually is. So we lived in that property. We built that property. We lived in it for a while. And then when we separated, we rented it out as an investment property. Uh, I still have email PTSD from that experience where every time I get an email to my personal email, I have a moment where I think it's from my property manager about the property. Yeah, it's really scary. Mm. Uh, So that was a big one. I also bought a Mini Cooper on finance when I was in my early 20s. That was uh, a train wreck. There's no other way to say it. It was a horrible little car and uh, it was a very expensive exercise. Mm -hmm. I was enrolled at uni and I didn't in, unenroll in time and then I had to pay a whole semester of hex. Yep. Um, I've, I've made some big ones. Like I really, people think, oh, you know, you've, you've been good at money forever and you've, you know, it's, it's easy when you've, you know, grown up in a household where you've been taught about money. No one escapes money mistakes. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to what we 
you know, it's not how many times you get kicked down, it's how many times you stand up. So mm-hmm. I have so much compassion for when people come and see me and they say, oh, like, you know, if I was just better with money, like these things wouldn't have happened and, you know, I'm such a failure. Failure is the only F word a client isn't allowed to say in my office. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really everyone makes money mistakes. It's really what we do after that point that shapes who we are. Mm. Victoria, I think you just hit a really interesting thread here, which is do you feel that people need to see or come across financial pain before there's a pathway to financial gain or do you feel like there's some other people that actually before they hit these really big crises points that they recognize and then make a change? Which one do you think happens more? I think that people can't have financial empathy until they have experienced their own financial crisis. So for people who are, you know, if you're talking to someone who is explaining to you that they have a problem with money or they can't save or something's happened and you've never experienced anything like that, I would really warn you against giving advice to that person and, you know, refer them, refer them to us, refer them to a financial counselor where where they're professionals. So, because it's really, really difficult. Sometimes a friend will give you the tip of the iceberg, right? They'll say, this is the story. This is what's happening to me. And, but what you're not hearing is all of the underlying stuff that has caused that to happen. So you, Mm. to help them, you think, "Oh, oh, I've done that. That's easy. This is all you have to do. And you try and solve the problem without understanding what the real problem is. In terms of financial counselling, though, I think a lot of people delay coming as early as they should because they're so they're so, they're so ashamed or they're so afraid that we're going to sit there and say, well, if you hadn't done this, this and this, we wouldn't be in this situation. But really that's, that's not the case at all. And the earlier you can come, the more options you'll have. You know, the difference between someone coming to me after not being able to pay their mortgage for one or two months versus someone who comes to see me when they've got a sheriff's eviction notice Mm. is, you know, a huge realm of difference in the options that we have available. Mm. So that would be my advice is as hard as it is, the earlier you can come, the better your experience will be and the Mm. better we're going to be able to help you. Victoria, what kind of situation if someone thinks they need if someone thinks they need help, like what kind of situation do you need to be in to approach a financial counselor? Because okay, so this is this would be my fear would be am I in not enough trouble or am I too far gone? What kind of situation can people be in to approach you? Like, is there ever a problem where you're you might be too much of a burden or not in too much not in enough trouble for you to warrant helping? What I always say to people is it's a free service. So if you come and it's not the right fit, mm-hmm. it's no loss to you and it's no real loss to us. We would rather that you come so that we can check. Mm-hmm. It would normally be more of a misalignment. So, for example, if someone comes to us and they've got a real tenancy issue, it might be more appropriate that they go to a tenant advocate. But there may be financial issues interlinked with that, in which case you need both. In terms of having too much wealth, that's a bit of a tricky one. I think that there are some financial counsellors who have a cutoff for counselling, but it really depends on the situation. So, for example, I've got a client who's got $1.4 million of property mortgage. But, wow. Yes, but 
all of those properties are cross-collateralized against each other and due to, that means that not paying one, the other properties are also a security for that one. Thank you for explaining that. Thank you. You probably just saw my very confused face going, excuse me, cross-collateralized. Okay. And because of the situation with her, uh, with her ex-husband, None of those mortgages are being paid. She's waiting for the bank to seize those properties, but it's really complicated. So on the surface, if we were looking at net worth, there's 1.4 in mortgage, 1.6 in property value, but a financial counsel is not going to turn somebody away just on that basis. Whereas if it's somebody who really needs a financial advisor because all of their expenses are being paid, they've got minimal to no debt, or, and they're really looking for structured wealth accumulation, i.e. growing your money advice, mm. then it's not appropriate for them to come to us. Well, that's a, that's a really big story, uh, especially what we stress. It sounds like a really you know, big, big situation there for that, for, that, uh, for that person. Victoria, tell me about the biggest transformative story that you've come across. What's something that, what's a story that you just think back and think, this person really came out the other end and became super successful? I had, this is one of my favorite client stories of all time. I do have a few um, that are very close to my heart, but this lady came to see me when I was relatively new as a financial counselor. She was about to file for bankruptcy for the second Mm -hmm. time. She was in her early to mid thirties. She was living with her mum and her daughter and she had a property with her ex-husband who was very violent and Mm -hmm. she had left and he had not left the property and the bank had to seize it. There was a lot of very, very expensive processes that had to happen to get Mm -hmm. to that point. So there was a massive, so basically what happens when a bank seizes a property for non-payment, they get it ready for sale and they sell it and then they come for the difference. Mm. So uh, there was a really big shortfall, which is basically the difference between what was paid, what what is owed and what the house is sold for, for the clients. And the bank had been pursuing the client for five years to pay that debt back. And she said to me, she goes, I know that I'm probably going to need to file for bankruptcy again. I know that it's going to ruin my credit file. She's like, I'm really devastated because all I want is a safe house for myself and my daughter. She was at uni. Amazing, amazing woman. And in the end, it took us about three months, I think, to get the bank to come to the party. But in the end, we got them to to remove her from being liable for that debt. It was like 240 grand. Wow. Um, Yeah. So she didn't have to file for bankruptcy. Her old bankruptcy had come off her credit file. She could save for a deposit. And she she actually emailed me a couple of weeks ago to ask me about something. And she said, oh, you know, I'm doing a bit of relief work while I finish my degree. Like I'm nearly there. And I just thought, oh, my God, like that's that to me is – when I get in the car at the end of the day and I go, I changed someone's life today. You can't, yes. you can't put money on that, you know. That's um, you just made me tear up. That's really. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my case studies, both of those case studies are really dramatic. You know, those are real end of the line case studies. Some of them never get anywhere near that bad. So please don't think that if you're sitting there listening like, oh, the bank's not about to seize my house, I don't need, I shouldn't see a financial counsellor. 
not the case. Sometimes people come and see me because I've got two or three buy now, pay laters and they're cycling them against each other. And, you know, the total debt's only $800, $1,000. Still allowed to come. Your experience is still valid. Please don't think that you're not in crisis enough. Very good message. Uh, Victoria, as we uh, wrap up the show today, I, you know, it's tax time. It's everyone, most people's favorite time of year uh, for a little healthy boost to be hopefully hitting your bank accounts. Now, what would be, in a quick fire round, what would be your top three tips to get the most out of tax time? If you've got a relatively small debt, approach the lender about settling it for less than the total balance. If you've got a little goal in mind and the thought of only saving $20 or $30 a week makes you not want to start, mm-hmm. take a little bit of your tax return and boost up the beginning of the account so when you look yep. at it, it's already got a little bit there. And the third one is spend a little bit, spend 10%, 20%. If you've got something that you've had on your list for ages and you just can't justify but it's still on your mind, I always say you have to wait at least two weeks before you buy something that's not mm-hmm. vital just to make sure that you really want it. Then spend a little bit. Do all three. Love it. Amazing. Victoria, if you could leave our listeners with a message, something to remember, what would it be? The past shapes who we are, but it doesn't define who we're going to become. Oh, love it. Perfect. Perfect message. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today, Dan and I. Really, really appreciate it. If our listeners want to find out more about you and the awesome work that you're doing on Instagram and as a financial counsellor, where can they find you? So the best place to find me is on Instagram um, at bad.bitch.money. If you are looking to find a financial counsellor near you, the best place that you can go is www.financialcounsellingnetwork.org.au. Or you can call the National Debt Helpline on 1800 007 007. It's always free. It's always confidential. And we will always do our best to help. Spoken like a true professional. Thank you, Victoria. Have a lovely day and pleasure having you on We Talk Sense. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another awesome installment of We Talk Sense. Don't forget to leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch with us and provide any thoughts or questions about how we can improve the show, ask any money questions that you're interested in, then get over to Instagram at a handle at GetWeMoney and drop us a note. All right, guys. Well, that's it. Looking forward to catching up with you all next week. Thanks. See you later.